Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome back to our coverage of House of the Dragon. Today we're talking about episode 5 of season 1, We Light the Way, in which we get the wedding between Rhaenyra and Laner, with only one death. Weak. Uh, the Dothraki would consider this a dull affair. They would have been very, very disappointed. But thankfully, I wasn't. I thought it was a, another solid episode. I'm not, at some point, I guess we'll do an episode ranking. You know, we'll, we'll break it down to pure numbers maybe at the end of the season. But it hasn't, hasn't been an episode so far that dipped below good and mostly great. Yeah, no, I'm in the same position as you. I just think I'm enjoying these episodes more and more, or at least I'm just being further and further sucked into the story being told. Um, but it just kind of keeps hitting these out of the park. Um, very similar to the Hunt episode, I love having another big uh, set piece that isn't a battle that kind of drives everything going on. Yeah, agreed. It was a, a great build up to the wedding. You know, our favorite thing in Westeros <laughs> is always a wedding. They were, t- you know, in the behind the episode, they were definitely playing with that self-consciously, as you kind of have to. Yeah, like, you know, absolutely. you can you can roll your eyes at some direct references to thrones that pop up here and there. But that's an expectation so built in that you can't really ignore it. You just have to find your own way of leaving a mark, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. Sometimes you just got to uh, play the hits. Um, and that's what uh, they're doing this t- this week with uh, House of the Dragon. And I did want to shout out that this is the second uh, directorial job by Claire Kilner, who do, who did last week's uh, King of the Narrow Sea. And I think she's acquitted herself quite well and has entered into that pantheon of uh, upper tier Thrones directors with these back to back outings. So we start off in the veil. We start with just a shot of the sky. And just like every time they show a shot of the sky in this show, I'm watching for dragons at this point. So in the opening of this episode, when it was just a bird flying by instead, I just flinched. And then I just laughed at my dumb ass. They got me. They got me that time. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what the show conditions you to do. So who can blame you, really? But we are here in or around Runestone to meet Rhea Royce uh, here with her bronzish Royce armor, which is kind of giving me uh, Yara Greyjoy vibes from the old show. And I think to the extent Rhea is playing on some of that same kind of, uh, you know, warrior woman or at least kind of like that more martial character trope that we saw a little bit in Thrones. Um, her breastplate and her armor is very ordainedly decorated. You can see runes visible on them, which I guess would be appropriate for a lady of runestone. And she's she's talking to her, I forget the guy's name, her cousin or Castellan or remind me the relationship between her and it the guy. It sounded like cousin or uncle and I think his name was Sir Gerald. Yes, you are correct. Thank you. And so they're talking and he's offering to ride with her and she says that she'd rather ride alone, which definitely feels like her, you know, statement of of independence and self-reliance, dovetailing with a lot of the stuff Rhaenyra has been talking about. But coming back to it, watching the the second time in preparation for recording, I realize, oh, yeah, that just that winds up getting her killed. Just uh, how, you know, what irony is that, that her her attempt to just take control of the situation is what gets her killed because if there had been a witness i mean i guess damon might have tried to kill him too now that i say that (laughs) knowing damon but i think it would have made it less likely oh yeah hard to claim they were both killed in a hunting accident (laughs) they were both thrown from their horse yeah that would at the exact same time (laughs) those horses 
can't trust them. Yeah, no, there's a certain double-edged sword to trying to escape the patriarchy, something we're seeing kind of Rhaenyra struggle with as well, is that even if she does try to go alone or separate herself from the pack or run away from things, it can consume you all the same because then, you know, there are no witnesses and then Damon basically is able to do whatever he wants or he doesn't even really have to do much of anything. It just kind of all happens as it goes. Yeah, and I love that. I love that she she rounds the corner and finds Damon, and he's just he's wearing the same hooded cloak he was wearing down at King's Landing in the previous episode. That's just that's just Damon's uniform now. He's taken off the gold cloak, and he just has the the hysterically villainous hooded cloak, which just looks so you know it looks creepy and mysterious at nighttime in King's Landing, but in broad daylight in the Vale, he just I think intentionally I think he, he just looks kind of silly with his he's just standing there with his shoulders hunched beneath <laughs> his dark mysterious hood. He's really leaning into the rep at that point. And there's that nice moment where she's taunting him, or is taunting him, and, you know, about Rhaenyra ascending uh, even closer to the throne, asking if, if he's going to kill her. And then you watch her realize, oh, Damon might try to marry her instead, which he can only do if he kills me. I love how aware Rhea is about everything here, up to including Damon's just appearance here out of nowhere. A lesser show might have her say, who goes there, but before Damon reveals himself. But Rhea knows right away who it is, then immediately correctly surmises what is happening in Damon's life and what his intentions are now that he's here. Which is what it... Which is unfortunate what happens, because whatever Damon's intentions are, he doesn't really flinch when she goes for her weapon. The problem is, with when you're dealing with someone like Damon Targaryen, you can't really afford to let him make the first move. So I don't think Rhea Royce's instincts were wrong here in trying to go for her bow. I did love the bit where Rhea taunts him into into finishing her off just to, to mercy kill her and spare herself the pain, specifically by mocking him for not being able to finish in heavy, heavy air quotes. Which is so perfect because, of course, that's exactly what went down with Rhaenyra last week. He's already smarting from that, and then she throws that in his face. So naturally, he picks up a big rock. Naturally, he does that. Given what uh, Rhaenys tells us about how they left no heirs later on between Damon and Rhea, you wonder if he perhaps tried to get Rhea with child at some point and also couldn't finish then. Um, the, in- the impotence of Damon Targaryen is not something I expected to be talking about on this show, but here we are. Rhea uh, begging for mercy or to be mercy killed also reminded me a bit of Arya and the Hound from A Storm of Swords or the end of Game of Thrones season four when he's beaten bloody and asking for mercy. Um, And just forewarning, this won't be our last Sandor Clegane and Stark sister mentioned this episode. Going back to Arya and the Hound, uh, Arya does not oblige Sandor Clegane with mercy, but here it does appear that Damon does, picking up a giant rock, which is, again, something Arya also th- threatened the Hound with during that season four escapade. But instead of this show uh, showing Damon landing that finishing blow, we instead get a smash cut to a fish getting its head chopped off on the royal pleasure barge. Yeah, I love that edit. Like, it's a well-placed cut like that. It can make you wince more than actually seeing it because your mind fills in the gap and you just freak yourself out because whether you want to or not, your brain just immediately inserts what Damon just did and then you flinch and react to the fish as if that's what you saw. It's a simple thing, obviously. It's in, it's in tons of movies and shows. It's the simplest little trick, but I always like seeing that executed well. Yeah, absolutely. And that uh, takes us next to the royal barge that's sailing from King's Landing to Driftmark uh, in very stormy weather. I think that storm was actually somewhat seeded last episode because near the very end when Alicent and Viserys are chatting, you can hear thunder rumbling. And there's a lot of discussion about Viserys sailing into storms this 
uh, week. So I think it's all just very poignant, if a bit, you know, on the nose. But, you know, V is for Viserys and V is for Vomit. Uh, Not for victory. Not this week. Not this week. Um, He has a royal puke bucket holder who is just there. And then sometimes he he decides to change it up and is like, no, I choose the handrail this time. And he runs to the side of the boat um, and decides to uh, vomit over that side. But I can see him clearly dripping some out on the on the handrails, so someone's going to have to clean that up. I assume the same puke bucket guy. Um, Probably. He's got to keep the work, you know. Yeah, there's natural synergies there, you know, competencies that overlap between puke bucket and puke rail cleaning. Got to add value. Always be closing. (laughs) Um, And the newly minted hand, Lionel Strong, pulls out a handkerchief, which I wonder if he always carries around or it's just something he carries around for Viserys' sake at this point because... You never know when matters of state are going to come up and Viserys has to present all kingly like so he has to be ready to wipe him down and clean vomit out of his beard which hey that's actually kind of fun because next week we're going to be talking about Brienne cleaning uh, vomit out of Jamie's beard in Jamie 4 from A Storm of Swords. I dearly hope Lionel has more than one handkerchief with him (laughs) at all times. I hope he has a series like the magician like you know all tied together handkerchiefs. I hope he's got one of those, because I'm betting that wasn't the only time that happened to Viserys, even on the relatively short ride over. He's uh, he's not doing great. They're, they're really hammering home his physical disintegration in this episode, especially that little bit later, where Corliss likes, keep, keeps asking if he can bring the, the king a chair. Like just, It's not even like a power play at that point. It's just like, dude, sit down. <laughs> this, is, this is painful to watch. And it's tempting to, to add this to our endless list of, of metaphors for the collapsing reign of King Viserys Targaryen. Really, this one isn't even a metaphor, though, because Viserys' collapse is literally shortening his time on the throne, as Otto says to Alicent later. But Otto has been replaced, of course, by Lionel Strong, and we really see in this episode that he is all in as Hand of the King. He's just blustering about Corliss's insult to Viserys by not coming himself. He's even present when the doctors are treating him later, which is a, a real sign of, of mutual trust and vulnerability and dedication between the two of them. The Strongs have really, they've they've tied themselves to the crown at this point. They are ready to replace the Hightowers. And, you know, if you're familiar with the source text, you can kind of guess how this is going to go. Speaking of Otto Hightower, we get his one scene in this episode saying goodbye to Alicent after getting fired his hand to the king. I love the I love the giant umbrella that Alicent walks out with as the queen. <laughs> and I love that just as Viserys has his puke bucket holder, Alicent has her official royal umbrella holder. And he's just like spinning it around behind her while he waits. You know, got to keep busy. Again, got to add value. And uh, it's a solid little dialogue scene where I do think they both have a point. Mostly Alicent. But, you know, Alice, she's right that obviously that Otto's informant was wrong and that she... Even though Rhaenyra wasn't honest to her about what happened with Kristen Cole, she was honest about what happened with Damon. But Otto was also right that Viserys is not going to live to a ripe old age, and they need to make active plans for what happens next. Like I don't, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't follow Otto's strategy, but I do think waiting around and hoping that Rhaenyra still likes you—that's that's not really a plan. And you need to, you need to be on the on the offensive, on the affirmative, regardless of what direction is taking. You have to have a strategy for when Viserys dies because that's it's around the corner yeah Otto's being very forceful here to the point that he's telling Allison she should have foreseen some of what has come and that she only wants to believe Rhaenyra was innocent and there's nothing more to it he's making her question her own instincts and decision making but he also points out that she's not a fool that she's choosing not to see the secession crisis that is looming which to be fair is a crisis that Otto has been seeding this entire time (laughs) Who could have seen this coming? Yeah, he conveniently leaves out that he 
by pushing for Aegon to ascend the Iron Throne, he is equally responsible for a war breaking out, which he covers up by treating Aegon's ascension as if it's just the natural law and the way things should be, and Rhaenyra is the outlandish fool who's proposing that people honor the vow they swore to her, and that Viserys live up to his promises. How unreasonable. How silly of her. And it's really a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point, this whole idea he has that he sells Alicent on of, you know, Rhaenyra... It's not even that she's evil. She's just going to have to kill you and your children to secure her own power, to secure her own claim, to quiet people who would back you. It's it's inevitable she's going to do it. And, yeah, I mean, yeah, if you force her hand, then, yeah, she's definitely going to prove willing, at least to a certain extent. But that really is not her initial instinct. And they are, they're both, they're making each other worse and they're chasing each other down the drain. We're going to see a, a mirror version of that with the Valerians. More reasonable, I think, but kind of the same logic at work. It's a it's a unilateral disarmament thing, right? Like, you know, it's a prisoner's dilemma thing. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't want to back down in case the other side doesn't. So that guarantees neither of you backs down. It's that it's the winner you die logic going on here. And Otto's uh, one of Otto's last lines is he's getting kicked out of the city. He's you know, prepare Egon to rule. That should be the goal. And just that line, especially with that name, it reminds me of Young Griff. How Varus talks about Young Griff at the end of a dance with dragons that you know he has been prepared to rule since before he could walk or whatever line he says. Um, but there is a suspicious, there's a suspicious lack of details in what Otto was talking about when he says prepare Egon to rule. Like, does he mean train him in courtly manners and the, the nitty gritty of governance? Is this about policy or is preparing him to rule just mean telling him he ought to be in charge? Yeah, it's the difference between Connington raising young Griff and say Cersei raising Joffrey. I think mm -hmm. back to Tyrion's line about it, it's hard to put a leash on a dog once you put a crown on its head. Is Aegon just going to be told everything the light touches is his, and he should command as it, as it is so? Or, you know, should he actually, like, learn the ins and outs of ruling, of the faith, of the maesters, of everything there is to possibly know to, you know, don the floppy ears to be king of the rabbits? And when Otto embraces her to leave, the way he cradles her neck is literally the same, like, animation you see in Metal Gear Solid Five when you choke out a soldier with Big Boss, which is, <laughs> I actually oh think, kind of appropriate because Otto's love, such as it is, is suffocating her, and Allison feels trapped by it. So we head back over to Driftmark, where no Corliss or Rhaenys is there to meet, greet the king or Rhaenyra, just Lena who comes out to meet them and tell them their father is tired from long voyages, and Joffrey and Laenor practicing combat in the yard. Oh, the boys love their swordplay of all kinds. We often talk in our regular episodes about how swordplay and dancing and sex can all be interchanged with each other in the main narrative, and we really see that get hammered home in this episode, especially in the final feast. And Corliss not showing up here is definitely a shot across the bow, which is an appropriate <laughs> metaphor for him. As he said in episode two, he works harder than most lords. He built this place, and by not showing up, he's sending the message that he's too he's too busy getting his hands dirty to pay attention to protocols like this. Even though actually he is it's not like Corliss is unaware what he should be doing, he's just acting like it's beneath his notice. And that's that's his own way of playing politics. And Lionel, of course, sees right through that, he sees the insult. Pretty clearly, he's considering the Valerians as a, as a rival for the king's ear, that they might horn in on his power. <laughs> like, like Viserys, by contrast, is just too tired to give a shit. He's just like, I gotta, I gotta walk, and all my mind kind of has to be on that for the next couple minutes. Can we get past this shit? <laughs> uh, we cut back to King's Landing now, and back to the Godswood, where we get the opening shot of the Heart Tree weeping, which I think is very deliberate imagery here despite getting very little in the way of northern houses or the old gods uh, or houses that worship the old gods appearing in the series thus far 
but we see Allison just kind of staring off into the distance, and then Lord Laris Strong's voice comes in from off screen, which honestly reminded me a lot of a ton of Sansa and Littlefinger scenes from the old show, where she would just kind of be standing there, whether in King's Landing or the Vale or wherever, and then you would just hear Aiden Gillen's creepy-ass voice come in from off screen. And he's there talking about the flowers that are growing in the Godswoods, which are indigenous to Bravos. And he says, we know with all rights, they should wither and die here, but they're inexplic- inexplicably thriving. And that just makes me think of various characters we know across many, both series, uh, characters that don't think they would thrive in King's Landing, but end up be doing very well, such as uh, Tyrion in A Clash, A Clash of Kings. And Allison, for her part, is still wearing red and black, uh, which is just important to note given where the end of this episode goes. Yeah, I love the the color in this scene, the pop of color with her dress and then even more so with the flowers. It's a nice contrast in what is, for the most part, a, a kind of visually drab episode, like on purpose, like uh, Driftmark. The kind of weathered gray and brown color palette is very appropriate for that for that uh, that setting. But it's nice to have this little break in this this Godswood scene. And I think they're setting up Laris really well. Like Harwin is kind of still basically MIA as far as the Strongs are concerned. We'll see how that plays out. Obviously, we can get more of him in later episodes, but he ends up being really crucial, obviously, to how things turn out. So it would be good to get more focus on him. But I really think they've got a they got a handle on his brother here. Laris is, is mild and courtly. He's he's interested in things other than fighting his way to the top. And he's clearly a learned man and one who is able and happy to speak to women as equals, which is a, a rare thing among, uh, I was going to say his class, but really it's just his gender as a whole as far as we're shown. Yeah, I love how this scene plays out, especially later in the conversation when Allison turns his back to him, but the conversation goes on. You can see Laris's head kind of extending and trying to peek around to see if he's getting the intended reaction out of Allison. The manipulation is very much kind of on the sleeve here, but I think it plays really well. He's uh, he's a lot like Tyrion, as you were saying earlier, kind of less less snarky maybe than Tyrion, but he also reminds me a lot of Varus. You know, he uh, he leads people to conclusions rather than stating them out loud. Like, he's just hinting at what happened with Rhaenyra, letting Alicent uh, kind of reach the conclusion herself, and then being very self-deprecating. Oh, what a relief to be wrong, as he just winks at the camera. No, he's right, but he's not going to say it. He doesn't want to... Uh, he, he doesn't want to get himself into a situation where someone shoots the messenger, I think. And also, he just... he. He takes advantage of being underrated and not being the aggressive person in the dynamic. He get he like he nervously smiles a lot in the scene with Allison. That's kind of his tick. I get the sense it was it might be deliberate though that that it's he does that to uh, relax people and make them think they don't have to be intimidated by him or worried about their present worried about his presence. And then who knows what they might let slip when they're in that mood. It's what he says like when you know no one brings me to the conversation, so I watch. I soak it in i you know look with your eyes as sirio said to Arya, and it's also similar to what dantos told sansa about being a spy in plain sight he says you know no one they look right through me they act like i'm not there so they just say stuff around me as though i'm the furniture and that information is valuable i love that he's talking about specifically observing while the weirwood face looms in the background Mm -hmm. observing everything quietly and then we get into his big reveal obviously of rhaenyra and the moon tea and I love that that's such a great counterpoint to his little flower metaphor. Like, you know, Moon Tea is kind of the opposite of something taking root. Something has not taken root in Rhaenyra. Yeah, no. Um, Allison asks Laris to state his purpose, at which point Laris gets to Rhaenyra being quote unquote unwell and leads to the reveal of the Moon Tea secret. We talked last week that there was always eyes in the Red Keep, and having Melos deliver it to Rhaenyra was a bit reckless. So clearly someone 
was observing. And I also am thinking now that I really love this part about when no one's talking, you get to observe. A lot of what happens in the final scene at the feast is nonverbal communication between characters yeah. or Viserys mm-hmm. watching Damon and Rhaenyra or Joffrey and Lenor watching Kristen Cole. They're figuring out what they can just by observing and not by communicating, which this scene, I just realized, really sets that up completely well. Yeah, visual information like that is great because it, it shows off characters' intelligence, but it also puts you in their position because, you know, scanning the frame and looking for stuff is what you're doing in the audience. So showing the characters involved in that is a great way to heighten tension without even doing all that much. And yeah, as we'll get into, the wedding scene is a great, much more suspenseful example of that, much more extended. So it's interesting that that he's coming to Allison specifically with this information. You know, it's... It's kind of counterintuitive on the surface because like the, as he says, like his dad has replaced her dad as the hand of the king. They are potentially rivals. The Strongs have replaced the Hightowers as the family of the Tower of the Hand. It's kind of a zero-sum game. Then again, they, the other major house, the other major player besides the Targaryens here is the Valerians, and it doesn't seem like Lionel is getting along with them. And now here we have his son reaching out to the queen. So maybe it could be that the Strongs, I mean, they could be acting, they don't, they're not necessarily acting as a team here. But it, it might be that as individually or as a team, they are wary of betting on Rhaenyra, or at least betting everything on Rhaenyra, and want to keep a foot in the other camp in case Aegon winds up sitting the throne instead. Yeah, no, I think that's a great observation. I'm very intrigued to see how much of the Strong's machinations are, whether in tandem or Laris and Lionel possibly at odds with each other. So we cut back to Viserys making the long walk to the Hall of Nine, past several armed Valerian men. When they arrive at the doors to the hall, Rhaenyra is shot out of the room and Lena leads her away to breakfast. Rhaenyra looks back at the door, thinking she may once again be excluded from matters of statecraft. The hall itself has just great set design. Lots of naval and marine biology nonsense that people will likely be screenshotting and magnifying this entire week. There's a giant mural of a ship with the helmeted skulls of Corliss's ancestors underneath. There's wild seashell statues and urchin-like architecture. There's also a model castle in the corner, not unlike Viserys' model of Valeria. I doubt Corliss is sculpting an homage to the Valerian ancestral home in Valeria, since his family is descended from merchants. It could, however, be a model for High Tide, the keep here at Driftmark that Corliss himself had built with his recently begotten wealth. Whereas Viserys' model looks to the past, Corliss looks to the future, something he built that he will now pass down to future generations. Uh, that's a great contrast. That's a really great point, especially thinking about, and obviously, spoiler alert, that Corliss is one of like, you know, two characters we've met so far <laughs> that survives the war. Uh, not by long, not by much, <laughs> but but he makes it through and thinking about him as, as future-oriented is really great in that regard. Also bittersweet, this is just kind of an aside, but I was thinking about how the Valerians are just this total non-entity by the time you get to the time of A Song of Ice and Fire, mm-hmm. partially because of what happened in the dance and partially then because the Targaryens are gone. And, you know, that's that was their, their, their patron at the end of the day. And, you know, obviously nothing lasts forever, but it's just bittersweet to hold that up in contrast and think about how alien it is for the Valerians to be a major power player compared to A Song of Ice and Fire, where, like, they're mentioned, like, twice as fighting for Stannis, and then they lose at the Blackwater, and then that's it. But here... Here in the past, it's like, you know, there's a, there's a possible bright future for them. And I, I love I love this shit. I love this castle. I love Driftmark as a setting. I, I just, it feels like we're under the sea, like Corliss is Poseidon. 
and you can, it's just so the textures are great and you can just like smell the salt and feel all the sandy grit under your fingernails. It's the kind of place I imagine Davos would live if he ever like got a got a week off from from being Stannis's conscience <laughs> and got to go home and build something. I feel like this is the kind of place he'd like to live. And I I love the bit where where Viserys specifically avoids talking about Damon. I think it's Damon when he then turns around to compliment the place. Like, I think it's a genuine compliment. It's a beautiful place, but he's like, he's doing it to avoid talking about something else. And he specifically says, well, I live in the Red Keep, but you know, this is still pretty nice. Paraphrasing, obviously. But that's that's a that's a nice, like, little example of how to play this game. That it's a, it's a compliment with a sting in the tail. And we've seen this in previous episodes. The conversations with Corliss and with Rhaenys, they tend to be very tranquil on the surface. They're not like ragged, dramatic, explosive scenes. They're because they're expert politicians. It takes a lot to make them lose it, but you can still see their emotions running just underneath. Like that bit where Corliss tells Lionel that, oh, he can't think of any man more suited to be handed the king. Yeah, well, of course he can, himself. That's <laughs> definitely who Corliss thinks should be handed the king. And Lionel clearly knows that. Like, it's written on his face. He just has the stone face. and goes, that's very nice of you to say, my lord. Like, <laughs> we both know that's bullshit. But thanks. Thanks for keeping up appearances. And the only little break you get is when Corliss kneels and Viserys is about to let him rise. And then just he starts coughing. And you just get that shot that, like, you know, that knee-level shot for Viserys of Corliss's face. And he just glances up a little bit. And then back down. That's it. Yeah, Viserys is coughing a ton, even off screen before you can see him approach the Driftwood throne. And when his cousin Rhaenys emerges to meet him and takes his hand, she realizes his fingers aren't there. Are you well? She asks. And very, he jokes back. Rhaenys pours herself some water and then goes to stand in front of the Driftwood throne immediately after, which could be taken as a visual symbol of her non-existent reign, which Corlys and Rhaenys will talk a little bit later on. I think this is Eve Best's uh, best episode so far as Rainus. I think she gets the most to work with. I love her entrance, just throwing open the doors. Cousin! Like they're grilling. Like this is just like a casual weekend family thing. And she didn't just send a huge signal by not meeting him at the beach and just hanging out around the house. That's But she does it with that big smile. And then that very genuine human moment when they touch hands and you see it come over her face. Oh, right. This isn't, you know, we're not just playing a game of chess. This is my cousin, and he is visibly dying, and that, that does shake her for a minute. Yeah, even with the minimal rainies that we've gotten so far in the series, every time her and Viserys are communicating with each other, you can tell there is actual affection there. Perhaps some hard feelings about the succession deep under, but just like they are definitely outward, very amiable to each other. And as you mentioned just a second ago, this is where the news of Rhea Royce was communicated to Viserys, uh, with Rhaenys almost giving us the word-by-word printing from fire and blood in what happened to her. Uh, Rhaenys immediately jumps to the lack of heirs and who would inherit Runestone, but Viserys, once again, just wants to not worry about fucking politics, but in doing so, allows it to be a potential bomb waiting to explode later, like we almost saw in the dinner when Sir, Sir Gerald Royce confronts Damon about it. I, what I love about this part is just watching them all silently realize and acknowledge that, yeah, Damon definitely did this, didn't he? Yes, he definitely did. Lionel in particular looks like he's just ready to burst with like the, the, just the sheer effort of not saying that out loud. 
So Viserys gets to the point that he's here to propose a marriage between Sir Lenor and Rhaenyra, and to which Corlys says, okay, sure, but what exactly is the secession plan for after you pass or whatever? And Viserys says that Rhaenyra will be queen and her children uh, with Lenor will be rulers after that, regardless of gender. Uh, Corlys presses him on the children of this union, taking the last name Valerion, to which Viserys counters if Corlys expects his Targaryen line to end with Rhaenyra just because she's a woman, at which, you know, Rhaenys smirks at this because, you know, she was passed over for her gender. I know, right? That was hilarious, watching Viserys, like, stick up for the rights of women only in the context of his own claim to the throne. Like, gender equality after me. <laughs> I'm grandfathered in, almost literally. <laughs> but after me, of course, of course we're going to have equality. Why wouldn't we? And then you see how you watch Renus give just the biggest eye roll of all time. Yeah, and they eventually iron out the deal that the children can take the name of Valerian at birth, as is the tradition of Valeria. But when they do ascend to the Iron Throne, at that point they will take the last name Targaryen. And yes, as, uh, as unreasonable and uh, just full of blind spots as Viserys so often is, this is a solid deal. It's a good compromise, as Corlys says, that they'll, you know, they'll still be part Valerian, but then the, the official name of the dynasty will be Targaryen still. And it, I think it does a good job of capturing how they're in this, this liminal state of honoring some traditions and changing others. Like, okay, a woman can be queen, but the kids will still keep the father's name, except for the heir, who will be a Targaryen, but only when they take the throne. So what happens with their kids, depending on their gender, you know, that's that's the next generation's problem to worry about. If only that ended up being their problem. Uh, speaking of that next generation, we cut to Rhaenyra and Laenor having a nice little walk on the beach. Um, and all I had written in my notes <laughs> during the scene was hall pass fucking. <laughs> and essentially that <laughs> they're much. giving each other hall passes on who they can fuck uh, once they're married. It's another solid dialogue scene. It's a very... Just very careful and, and honest negotiation. And this is the this is the kind of conversation that still happens all the time, even in, you know, marriages where land isn't at stake. People get together for all kinds of reasons, and sex isn't always one of them. And so you cut a deal. It's better that they be honest about it now than risk confusion or, given their social status, worse than confusion later on. And uh, I think Rhaenyra sums it up perfectly when she says, if it has to be someone... I'm glad it's you. For Laner too, it could be worse. That's that's the ambiguity of it. They get along. They're not going to fight. They're not going to hate each other. But ideally, they both wish it just didn't have to happen. And I love that that Lainor kind of resists the intimacy at first, saying, "Oh, there's there's no ill will between us, cousin." Very diplomatic language. That you know the way that uh, Viserys and Corlys are talking to each other, and that forces Rhaenyra to just dig a little deeper into what's actually at stake, although even she is having trouble talking about it. Like, throughout this whole episode, we get all these these little hints and euphemisms. No one is, is willing to talk directly about the thing, whether the thing is sex or murder, sometimes both. So Rhaenyra says, no, I rather, dare I say it as a matter of taste, instead of just saying, you're gay, you're very gay, you're extremely gay, you're gay with that guy over there. Can't say that, so no, I rather dare I say it's a matter of taste, and it's the, the metaphor that George has used a couple times for talking about differences in sexuality. I think what Cersei says, you can, you know, if someone may not like the taste of wine, but if you put it before them, they'll drink it. Yeah, and it's also similar to the Fire and Blood line is like, I do not like fish, but when fish is served, I eat it. <laughs> exactly. So now we go back to um, the 
Hall of Nine, where Rhaenys and Corlys are kind of debriefing following their chat with Viserys. And Rhaenys comes off as more canny and aware than Corlys is specifically about their son. Um, Corlys is doing that, you know, 90s father of a gay child thing where, <laughs> oh, he'll grow out of it. And it's like, no, he won't, Dad. <laughs> Whereas Rhaenys not only acknowledges the true nature of Laenor, but she also knows this is a dangerous game. To crown him is to kill him. Knives will come out for them, all because there is a trueborn prince named Aegon Targaryen. And Rhaenys, to some degree, has put the queen who never was behind her a little bit. But other men around her, including her husband, are still kind of using that as cause for their own machinations. 90s dad is exactly right like it's that very specific it's not like raging homophobia but more kind of like a laid back like quietly self-delusional kind Mm -hmm. where it's just like it's a face he'll get over it i'm sure corliss just tells himself like you know son that's just so inconvenient for you and for everyone else just get with the program and rainus is yeah more honest with him and with herself and i think they're they come off to me as in this scene as a very uh, realistic power couple like, you really get a strong sense of how long these two have worked together and how well they know each other. Corliss starts off vulnerable, saying, well, I, I might have gone too far. What do you think? And Rhaenys is honest in return, saying, nah, really, Viserys is the one kind of who made this awkward. He's putting himself in a very vulnerable position here. And this is, it's interesting. It's a, it's a model of how Rhaenyra and Laenor could collaborate if they've always already been able to kind of reach this accord. I mean, obviously... Corliss and Rain is fuck. It's a different relationship. Corliss is, tries to get into that princess pussy right then and there. I love that he just starts to flirt. Yeah, Lena will never know what it's like to fuck a woman. And Rain just looks at him like, that's that's your transition. <laughs> that's how quickly you you go from you know casual homophobia towards your son to getting me in bed. That's, wow. Wow, one sentence. What a move. What a move. And he just can't seem to understand that his son doesn't feel the same way. I think he's, uh, above all, I think he's just desperate for Lanor to keep the Valerian line going and to, to help that the grab for power that they're talking about. And the, it's a nice touch that the, the scene starts out with, with Corliss just staring down the crab feeder's mask that he's added to his trophies, which is cute that Damon just gave him that as a parting gift, I guess. Damon is, is not quite as into the same kind of trophies as Corliss is. And watching Corliss stare, stare down that mask, it, it feels like he's just... He's wondering what it's worth. What what's what is what are all these treasures for? These wild memories of his adventure. What are they worth if he comes home and it it doesn't translate into power? But to that end, Rainus is also wondering what end does this union serve? Wealth? They already are the richest house in Westeros, and right now they have power, both naval and possibly soon influence at court, and a possibly a budding relationship with the Sea Lord of Bravos. Corliss responds, justice, which Rhaenys scoffs at, but I actually like this answer considering Corliss's endgame in all this and how coming back to his answer of justice might be legitimately earnest. Yeah, he's a really great complex character. I like how they handle him here where he is, I think he is sincere in his desire to avenge the wrong done to his wife. I don't think he's just using that as an excuse. But he, up to this point, it doesn't seem like he's been taking into account how she feels about it. He's just assuming she feels the same way or assuming that she feels the same way about it as she did years ago. And that's not the case, as she says. I'm sure it still hurts. Again, she rolled her eyes earlier at Viserys. But it's not, it's something she can almost joke about. It's not as raw as it once was. And it's not what's motivating her now. She's worried about the future. And that's a, it's a, like I said, it's a great flip side to the conversation earlier between Otto and Alicent because Rhaenys is basically saying the same thing Otto did, that we're walking into a war and we have to be aware of that. 
this is a it's a game of musical chairs ultimately only one side can claim the throne like there's other other areas of power that each side can work each side can have marriages but when it comes to the big game itself there's yeah, there's not enough room for the two of them or at least they've determined to make it so we're kind of talking about it like it's a, a natural event so then we cut over to Lenor and joffrey hanging out in the dunes and uh joffrey says yeah i mean he always knew this day was coming that Lanor would be married off to a woman. It is different from uh, the kind of obvious reference point, Loris and Renly, in that way, because neither Loris nor Renly, at least when they first got together, neither of them were the, the heir to anything. So it was plausible that neither of them would have to be married off necessarily. Still possible in terms of making alliances, but there's not the guarantee of it that comes with being the, the first son. But, you know, Joffrey's pretty optimistic about it at this point. Rhaenyra gave you the hall pass, and she's going to make you king consort. As he says, this is better than we could have hoped for. Like it's, you know, Lanor could have married someone across the continent or someone who hated Joffrey and wouldn't stand the sight of him. Like we're, we're leveling up. We're going to get tourneys and feasts and, and ship battles, he says wistfully, which is, uh, that was interesting. That it, it, He wasn't at the, was he at the Stepstones? There was someone who was supposedly subtitled as Joffrey Valerian, which I'm not sure if it was right. a mistitle or just some other different jobber that they threw in. But if he was there, he didn't really now. make his presence felt. Certainly true. And it's you get the impression from that line that he's still treating it like it's a game and it's still kind of abstract that, you know, sea battles would be in, on the same tone as, as feasts and tournaments. Yeah, and it very much feels like they're almost at the same place that Renly and Loras were in that episode, uh, season one, episode five, The Wolf and the Lion, uh, when we first really get to meet these two characters and find out about their relationship. And um, not that it means anything, but this is also season one, episode five of House of the Dragon. So it's like poetry. It rhymes, though. Sadly, no one here says Stannis has the personality of a lobster, but the question really goes to Joffrey surmising that who who would be Rhaenyra's paramour? Who is who does she have on the side that she wants to make this arrangement with Lenor with, which acts as an audio transition to Rhaenyra on a boat um, and eventually Kristen coming up to her and proposing his own kind of plan for what comes next. A great little moment, especially if you know what's coming, because when Joffrey asks uh, who could her paramour be, it's Kristen in the moment, but... The, the man, later on, she ends up sleeping with Homer to Lane or his Harwin. So at this point of the story, it would still be an open question. And yeah, I love the, these, these, the handful of scenes in the middle are all act really well in relation to each other. Uh, this scene with Rhaenyra and Kristen and how it relates to the Lane or Joffrey scene. And even the scene between, uh, Laris and Alicent. Laris was, was clever and subtle and Kristen is, you know, whatever the opposite of clever and subtle is. Just, I just love watching this poor sucker just stumble over his feet and just try to get words out. Like, he's, he's so, he's trying so hard at the beginning of this scene. Like, you know, we've, the, the, the years of our acquaintance and I, he just, he's trying to get it out. I feel that I, I know you a bit. Like, he's, he's trying to sound fancy. He's trying to sound courtly and worthy of her. It's just, it's sad, but funny to watch him try his best. I'm not a bloody poet. That's exactly. what uh, John says to Sam when trying to describe sex with Egret, and he's just like, I don't know what the fuck to say. And Kristen, son of a steward and household knight, is also just not going to be a poet. And he, he makes a point that, you know, in previous conversations, previously in the years of all acquaintance, she has bemoaned being married off against her will, and she did not choose Lenor. And Kristen, he says, eventually he gets around to it. He has he's come to offer her freedom, that we can be nameless and free. Which is not all that far off from what Damon was talking about, although he was thinking of it more in the strictly short-term sense. 
And it's it's very romantic when he says it, and he's describing the beautiful colors and the, the life they could live just for love and, and not for the crown. But practically, it also means instability, potentially poverty, and worse, infamy, as Rhaenyra says. I get the sense that that's that's really what she can't stand that she would be she would be despised and shunned for this by her family by everyone she's known and it would be she would be thought of by the people who didn't want her to ascend the throne as like oh we were right all along you know she was obviously unworthy look she just ran away with a with a nobody knight so we were we were always right, right to to be skeptical of her i think she would hate to confirm the worst people and their opinion about her yeah, that observation just set off uh, Theon Greyjoy bells in my head, like how he's lamenting how he can't be the Greyjoy who ran um, because mm. he's already suffering this identity crisis of, you know, what is he Greyjoy? Is he Stark? And then the last thing that a true Ironborn or hell, even a true Stark might do would be to run away and take refuge, whether it's with the Night's Watch or anything else. But I love the running gag about running away to Essos. It's right. like very similar to how Americans will threaten to run to Canada the next time the GOP pushes like a fascist policy. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert wants to run away with Ned to fight and sex in the free cities. Shay asks Tyrion to leave with her and leave the viper's nest that is King's Landing. And a bit different, but every time something went wrong for Daenerys in the Dothraki Sea or Red Waste, Sir Jorah was there just to be like, hey, let's grab a ship to Asai and let's get the fuck out of here. I love that. Even in Essos, people are t- telling, telling each other, let's go even farther east. Let's go, <laughs> let's go deeper into Essos. Just keep going. Well, just over the horizon, we'll find happiness. There's, there's an extra layer to that for Targaryens because that's, they come from Essos in the relative recent past. I mean, I know, yeah, the Andals obviously did too, but long ago enough that it doesn't kind of feel like mm-hmm. that day to day where the Targaryens still have their own language and they still have some of their own customs. And I think maybe there's a sense there that like going back to Essos means defeat or means like giving up on the Targaryen. What she talks about, Aegon the Conqueror coming to unite all of Westeros. And he just, Kristen Cole just walks away in the middle of that sentence because he knows what that means. That for her, going to Essos would be a, a failure, an admission of failure and weakness that she just can't can't stand. And it's a, it's a heartbreaking conversation. I, I, it's like that she doesn't even get what he's talking about at first, like when he's describing Essos with love in his eyes. And she's like, are you asking leave to go? Like, do you want to just go off by yourself and have adventures? Like, it doesn't even occur to her that he might be asking her to come with him. And he, des- he describes what she's got coming as the, the burdens and indignities of her inheritance. But even though she's that's true and she's complained about it, it doesn't. it's not that she wants to get rid of those is that she she wants to she wants to transcend them and she's starting to get the sense that maybe she's going to be able to do it that i am the crown she says or i will be and right there (laughs) that slippage is what's going to define the war but that that metaphor of of i am the crown that's something that has real weight for her it's that the same ruler as realm metaphor going on with viserys the sense that we have to be we have to be more than just ourselves we're not just people we can't be if we're going to be in charge yeah, and the I will be really stood out to me on rewatch, especially in light of how she belittles Jason Lannister later this episode. She assumes it will be so because everyone swore a vow to her, but is she actually working to secure her claim? And then Rhaenyra goes on to explain her arrangement with Kristen, which does not sit well with him at all. He's a hopeless romantic, and while he's focused on the romantic part, it's truly hopeless given Rhaenyra's ambitions and station. He's clearly someone who was conflicted in the moment he broke his vows, and this episode makes clear it's been weighing on him ever since. So when Kristen is offered the role of concubine, he's 
aghast. He wants to remedy the situation, but not prolong it indefinitely. That's where you get the great contrast to the Joffrey and Leno relationship. Kristen, unlike Joffrey, is just not willing to play along. And I, part of it is, of course, that this reminds him of his, his low status, that he's unworthy of marrying a princess. He can only be her side piece relative to someone from a higher higher rank, a more powerful family. Uh, there's also a, a gendered element to this, that Kristen's trying desperately to perform masculinity, and he doesn't want to be the passive partner in the relationship. It's, it's very telling that what he specific, specifically calls himself is a whore, because that to him would be less manly. He would be less of a warrior, less of a knight, less of an honorable man. And you're also definitely right that while he, he comes to her out of love, a lot of what's motivating him here is panic about what they've already done. That as he as he quickly breaks down, says my honor is all that I have, and I gave that up for you. And this is this is a self destructive spiral that's going to get a lot deeper as we go through the episode. And that is even beyond the question of of Rhaenyra wanting the throne and believing in her capacity to to get it, which is her her main motivator here. I also think it's just it's wise for her to say no just on the basis of how he's asking and why. Like it's just not good <laughs> to make those kind of life changing decisions in a panic just to like erase the last decision you made like that is that is a recipe for disaster yeah and i love the last shot of cole leaving um because it's just rhaenyra alone on the deck as she grasps for more power and plays the game of thrones the more lonely she's likely to become it reminds me of that line from galadriel about how to have a ring of power is to be alone when she's a consoling frodo it's a sad thing because that's what she wants right she wants him to mm-hmm. She wants to be the crown, but being the crown means being something other than a human among other humans. And Daenerys herself talks about being a lonely god towards the end of Storm of Swords. And this is a moment just like that for Rhaenyra. So before we get to Kristen and Alicent meeting in Alicent's chambers, we watch Alicent watch Viserys' return to the capital. He takes three steps out of his carriage and then immediately collapses. Like you said, it's not even a metaphor at this point. He's just literally <laughs> collapsing. Yep. His men rush to him, and Melos calls for leeches. But all of this is affirming what Otto told Allison earlier. The king is dying. So Kristen is summoned, but he's like, uh, I was just with the princess? Oh, shit, the queen wants me. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, shit. And he just stands in her presence, head down and gloomy, assuming that Alicent is about to lay out, what Alicent is about to lay out is all about him and not Damon and Rhaenyra. And Allison's indirect approach here is very much like her father last episode. She's unable to cut to the chase and just out and say, did Damon and Rhaenyra fuck? She beats around the bush, but with Cole's conscious heavy, he makes himself the protagonist of reality and confesses to his crimes. Yeah, it's just like the scene with uh, Rhaenyra and Lenor, where she, they're not going to openly talk about sexuality. They're just going to use their core little metaphor. But this, yeah, I laughed long and loud at this scene. This is such a such a perfect farce. Like you could drop this into Frasier or what a silly show like that. That just all the the wacky misunderstandings. It's like Allison. She she stops literally one word short of telling Kristen what she's talking about. Something happened between, and if she just said Rhaenyra and Damon, <laughs> like the the whole direction of the country changes because she doesn't finish that sentence. And Kristen is just so guilty and angry and himbo that he just he just fills in the gap with himself, so to speak. And yeah, it's all that all that euphemistic language from earlier in the episode paying off. And uh, and then it, but then it gets brutal again, 
or, you know, just sad, where, like, Kristen is, he's just so far gone that what he asks for, like, in return for telling her the truth and, and taking her into his confidences is just kill me quickly. Like, not, you know, smuggle me out of the city, not even send me to the wall, which, like, I think would you could maybe get away with that. No, just behead me instead of torturing me. That's the best case scenario. That's where his mind is at. Yeah, and I think it's worth keeping that in mind for a lot of the stuff that happens near the end of this episode. I think Kristen just kind of has a death wish um, at this point. Agreed. Uh, so whatever he does, he's like, well, it's not gonna, it's not going to matter in the long run anyways. But even after the admission, he just stands there waiting for Allison to order whatever punishment she has in mind. Hopefully it's a quick death and not a prolonged one. But she just instructs him to leave, and it takes him a second for that to sink in. But as the truth is spilling out of Kristen's mouth, I love the performance by Emily Carey, uh, especially in that face acting. Not to be like super online with my terminology here, but she's essentially jokerifying in real time. You can just see the cracks in that perfect facade of her face just start to like the quivers at the tips of her lips and her like eye is starting to twitch. Um, and everything her father said to some regard is turning out to be true. Then we cut over to uh, her husband, who is just very pleasantly dying, it looks like, or rotting <laughs> might be the way, way to describe it. He's got a poultice on his arm, he's missing fingers, and he just looks like shit. He's like clearly in a sweat, his hair is disheveled, um, his teeth don't even look that good here. Um, it very much reminds me of that Simpsons episode where Mr. Burns goes to the Mayo Clinic and they discover that he has every disease that has ever known to exist, including ones he probably shouldn't have given his age and gender. Um, and I love how this is shot because it's the dying king covered in shit and he's sweating in center frame and right behind him is the Valyrian model. Um, essentially, the doom comes for us all. Yep, it's creeping up behind him. And I love just how blasé and casual the doctors are just having their polite little disagreement over the best me best method to treat him as he just like shrivels like a pumpkin in November behind them. And it yeah, the the having that the model right there reminds me of all those great scenes on Dragonstone with Stannis kind of pacing around the map of the painted table that Aegon the Conqueror left there. And that's just such a great dynamic always because you have like the the king literally literally looking down on his realm, but it's just it's just an abstraction and like his flesh is failing and his spirit is fading and just the representation of it is all he has left at that point. Like he's just leaving the real thing behind. And Viserys gets all ponderous here as he's thinking about is he a good king or bad king? A good witch or a bad witch? <laughs> he's fought no wars. He has no great accomplishments. Um, what if he had lived to see more interesting times uh, to which uh, Lionel Strong, who like you mentioned, is there faithfully watching over him. Those that do see such times might wish they were spared them, to be honest. And it's honestly playing out like bizarro Lord of the Rings here. It's like that's like half Gandalf and Frodo in Moria. And then it's also a little bit like Helm's Deep when Theoden is armoring himself for battle and asking his men if they trust their king. And Gambling has to tell him that his men will follow him to whatever end. But this is the opposite. Viserys is not stealing up for battle, but succumbing to numerous ailments. And Lionel is all like, maybe it's a good thing you never had to lead a ton of men into battle or war. And if you had, it wouldn't be like the stories they would tell about it. Your experience would not be that same thing. And that's, that's something that they wrestle with in Lord of the Rings as well, of course, is that the, the stories aren't reality and they're not supposed to be. 
that there's this inherent gap between what you go through and what history records, which, as it happens, is exactly what Fire and Blood is all about. What do you do to have them sing of you? And what will you do if you realize you might just be a footnote, you know, a page in someone else's story, as again, the Stannis quote from the show. Mm-hmm. And I like, I like where Viserys settles that it's, it's better not to know. Because you'll, you'll never get to find out for sure what they say about you. And maybe if you did, that would be its own unique kind of hell. Like an ironic, like Twilight's own kind of hell where you get to watch what everyone says about you. And you can't change any of it. That, that might be horrible in its own way. Yeah, and it also works as a fun meta joke. Like, what will the history say of me? Well, Viserys, there's this handy little book called Fire and Blood. You might want to get yourself up. a copy. And they have there's a picture also- review of it and everything. <laughs> I'd say considering how Viserys looks here in this episode, it's a pretty flattering picture of him in Fire and Blood. Right. He might blow that up and hang it on the wall. He might stick that over his mirror. (laughs) And there's also a little meta joke in there with Lionel saying the realm is strong, just as uh, the strongs are starting to actually take various levers of power. Um, And quick Easter egg watch, we get mention of Orwile, who appears to be the maester that is assisting with uh, Melos in treating the king. Uh, We'll have plenty of Orwile at imagine to talk about in coming episodes and seasons so no need to belabor that point but i do love the transition from this scene into the next one viserys slumps in his chair and starts to nod off and essentially you know have a dream and we get a fade transition into Rhaenys and Lenor leading the valerians to king's landing for the royal wedding and visually, it looks like Viserys is dreaming, and it immediately goes to images of dragons, which, quote-unquote, dragon dreams. Hey, there it is. I kind of do wish, though, going into that next scene, we got a bit more establishing shots of Rhaenys on Maylees, like either a close-up of her riding it or seeing her get on and off of it. Well, I don't know if you know about this, but people are unsure if we'll ever see an actor dismounting a dragon uh, in this series just because yep. of how goofy it looked with Daenerys in the original show. Um, but I'm not sure if the general audiences are were picking up that, hey, that's Rainey's driving her driving, uh, riding her dragon, um, as opposed to whatever else they could imagine. I'm not sure if they've set up that distinction quite well yet. But I also noted that several times this episode, we get a skyline shot of King's Landing. Um, we also got it when Rhaenyra was returning uh, from Driftmark to King's Landing with Kristen Cole. And each time, the dragon pit looms as large as the Red Keep, basically, upon approach. And the eventual fall of the dragons and disrepair of the dragon pit will soon leave the Red Keep the only noticeable architecture in the skyline, at least until the Great Sept of Baelor is built, which you can go ahead and make all sorts of analyses about the faith replacing the dragons in Westerosi society. And though you can't hear them, you can see the bells tolling in their towers as the Valerians approach. So moving into the actual feast uh, that kicks off seven days of celebration before the wedding. And man, I'm coming to really love these big set pieces we're getting every other episode where they assemble the entire cast. This very much feels like The Lion and the Rose, The Purple Wedding and the Throne Show, where a lot of was told just by glances and facial expressions when you collect this many characters into a single set. And speaking of the set, I love the set design. We get the long tables brought in, which is straight out of several A Song of Ice and Fire chapters. And there appears to be this gnarly feathered centerpiece hanging from the ceiling too. Um, All of it just really creates an aura that they were really planning for seven days of festivities. So as this wedding feast kicks off, we have Sir Gerald Westerling announcing the houses as they arrive into the Great Hall. We get to see the Lannisters enter first, with Jason leading the pack of, 
or should I say the pride of lions behind him, including his brother, Sir Tyland. And Rhaenyra is just still mercilessly dunking on him. He, she literally greets him with the Daenerys eye roll that she gave both Krasnus and the Titans bastard from season three of Game of Thrones. And I gotta admit here, she's not being very tactful, even though Jason is making shitty jokes about women not being on time in war. But if she wants to be queen, she needs to be slightly more diplomatic and kind of shore up these alliances rather than giving them reason to harbor antipathies against her. It's, it, it is always important to be gracious to the losers. And, you know, even though the Lannisters lost the war for Rhaenyra's hand, they're always going to be a powerful family and you're, you're always going to need them on your side. So it's, it's always wise to keep them happy. And Alicent is noticeably absent here. And even as the Valerians enter next to big fanfare, uh, Viserys is constantly just looking over at the empty chair next to him awaiting his queen. But right after the Valerians, Daemon enters and Viserys is just not thrilled about it, but begrudgingly gets him gets him a table set or gets him a place set at the table um, at the end. It's a shot in a very similar way to his return to the throne room in the last episode when he was he was sauntering his way up to the throne. It's it's Damon's way of just grabbing all the attention, and he knows that Viserys is not going to publicly stop him; that he's not going to risk a public fight disrupting what's supposed to be a celebration of Targaryen power. So Damon can kind of rely on the eyes of the crowd to to hide him at least for a bit. So Alicent makes her entrance next, interrupting the speech being given by the king, which is not unlike how she's going to interrupt his plan for secession as well. She's wearing this stunning green dress, and everyone basically stops and awes at her like it's she's all that, and the nerd girl has shown that she's super hot, and everyone stands and rises for her. Um, and I love the bit where Allison is walking down the main path, and she gives like a knowing nod to her Hightower Quinn who smile back at her. And then she goes to greet Rhaenyra as stepdaughter instead of something more casually familiar like sister or formal such as princess. She's stepdaughter who only exists in relation to her husband and does not acknowledge her claim to the throne at all. And while this is all happening, we have Laris and Harwin, the strong boys, acting like a Greek chorus. You know what the green means, right? Uh, when the high towers light the green flame above uh, the high tower, that means they are calling the banners for war, which of course is always interesting because us as a Song of Ice and Fire sickos, when we think of green fire, we think wildfire. I think this is really solid in character terms. It's a great moment for Alicent to kind of visually signal her her detachment and her displeasure. And it, it's uh, a perfect way of illustrating for the audience that she's kind of internalized the truth she learned about Rhaenyra from Kristen Cole. And yet you have the strong there to explain things to the audience. I am kind of skeptical of the decision to drop the green dress here in Rhaenyra's wedding uh, because it doesn't set up the green versus black dress dynamic metaphor that we get from the source material. I mean, they can play around with it, sure, but it's like, is there going to be another scene later where Alicent once again wears a defiant green dress and Rhaenyra's dressed in black like that seems like a lot of the kind of punch of that has been lost now and like sure Rhaenyra could have her own scene but it's like it's not defiant for her to wear that color because black and red is what she's supposed to wear <laughs> so I'm I'm kind of skeptical of that decision but I understand you got a lot of you got to condense a lot of things working with a narrative like this it's very unwieldy and the moment on its own terms works really well so no complaints there yeah, I admit, I, I did not expect the green dress to appear here. I imagined we were going to get it with the older Alicent actor. Um, and 
It also speaks to, I'm not sure if Rhaenyra needed to be in white here since it wasn't her actual wedding day. Um, I guess it turned out to be her wedding day. Um, right. But like, um, if it was just kind of like an engagement party of sorts, she theoretically could have been in black and red, which could have set up the whole greens and blacks because it really worked in the book because it happened in tandem, right? Rhaenyra's wearing the black and Allison's wearing the green and they're clearly on different pages. But now it just kind of, it makes it look like it's Allison's choice. And maybe maybe they're going to play with it not being as both of them did something at the same time, but maybe it's something that Allison instigated and see where they go. But like you, I'm kind of confused as to why they didn't because it seemed like a, one of those like moments from this tale that I expected them to adapt to the T and they, they just didn't do it. We'll see. We might get a version of it, but I feel like the 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 spice of it is kind of lost with the uh, the color symbolism already spelled out for us here. Mm-hmm. I was expecting like yeah, like a very cinematic kind of stare down between the two of them in green and black. But we'll see. We might still get a version of it. Uh, lots of story to come. Next, we get dancing. Boy, do I love all the dancing we get. Um, I love how much story is communicated through dances, um, both in the show and in the main narrative. It feels very of a piece with Sansa 3, which we just covered, and how she had different conversations as she moved between her different dance partners. And this little sequence starts with the betrothed, uh, Lenor and Rhaenyra, doing a dance that feels like it's probably someone who's really smart on the production team taking a real-life waltz and adding some little flares to it to make it like a traditional Valyrian waltz for the show. But it's very effective, and I really love how, similar to The Hunt in Episode 3, they're bringing all these aspects of Westerosi high society high society to life in this sh- show yeah you have the dance as a as a metaphor for all the the fluid networks of politics of course that's why they, they call it the dance of the dragons and uh, Leonor makes that explicit and he says it's it's not much different than combat and you know it's all choreography so even staging the scenes is very similar and we see how easily this can uh, spill into violence as we go yeah and all the while Kristen cole just looks absolutely miserable in the corner su- switching between staring at rhaenyra versus just staring at his feet Joffrey Lanmau spies this and comes to the totally correct conclusion that, hey, I'm pretty sure that's Rhaenyra's parabore. And while this is all happening, Allison also takes time to go visit her uncle, Hobart. Uh, he views Allison's defiance in wearing this uh, stunning green dress as a positive development for House Hightower and says she has the support of Old Town. So this is also where uh, Sir Gerald... Royce uh, decides to uh, come up and confront Damon, but Damon instead quickly turns the death of his wife on him and says he's actually going to press his inheritance on Runestone, uh, and he's going to fly to the Eyrie and petition Lady Jane Aaron about inheriting the castle. Yeah, I love that you really get to show off how Damon operates here, that he's, he's half instinct and he's half cold calculation. And that makes him different from someone like Kristen, who is all instinct, but also different from someone like Otto Hightower, who is all cold calculation. And that combination, that that fire and ice, if you will, (laughs) that makes Damon very difficult to deal with. And we also get a little setup here of his relationship to Lena, that they're kind of talking in the background. It's never like center stage. It keeps cutting between them and other characters. So it's never the focus, but it's there if you're looking for it, where he says that she's almost as pretty as her brother, because that's Damon. He can't even flirt without being an asshole. And he, uh, she kind of shoots back, oh, you appear to be every young maiden's dream. And he says, yeah, that's, that's only because you don't know me yet. Yeah, but she will. But of course, later his focus is on Rhaenyra, dancing with her in the middle of the crowd. And once more, they're speaking in Valyrian to kind of set up this little bubble around them. Like when they're talking, there's no one else. They're cut off from everyone else. And Damon, just like 
Kristen did. He calls Lanor a good man, but Damon means it as an insult, as in you're gonna you're gonna be bored by a guy who's just good and dependable and reliable. That's not what you want, and that's that ties back into the Barristan question about what Danny wants. Does she want fire or does she want mud? I also like how Damon kind of uses Lena as a pretense to take to the dance floor, going to her first. But once he's there, he can mm-hmm. slowly change partners over to Rhaenyra without beelining straight for her and making a whole spectacle of it. And Rhaenyra, to her credit, is pretty savvy, throwing a lot of Damon's own words back at him about how marriage is just a political arrangement or about how she le- or how he left her uh, in the Street of Silk from the previous episode. Um, and while this is all happening, like I said, there's a lot going on in this one scene. Uh, we have Joffrey and Sir Lenor uh, having a little side chat, and Joffrey admits he's figured out that Cole is construct, which means that he's the one who's probably Rhaenyra's paramour, and he decides this moment to go and confront Sir Kristen Cole, which turns out to be a really bad move. And like we were saying earlier, it's just this great play of glances among all of them that just communicates it. That they're watching Kristen and Kristen's watching everyone. And uh, Joffrey is, is right about the politics here. That Rhaenyra, you know, from a certain point of view has an edge over Lanor because she she knows this damaging secret about him. And now Lanor can level the playing field with information about who her lover is. And Kristen is just, he's just standing there just smoldering. Just, he's just ready to burst. And it's this great uh, uh, contrast to, to Laris who, who says, you know, I have to observe, that's what I'm good at, and Kristen hates just standing there and watching, which is kind of bad for the Kingsguard, because that's most of your job. <laughs> but he, he has this, clearly he's just desperate to act, to do something that changes circumstances. That's why he he went all in on Rhaenyra, and that's why he confessed everything to Alicent, and now he wants he wants something else to do. And there's that, that dreadful irony, you just feel it as you watch this scene unfold, that, that Joffrey, you know, he's not picking up on that. So he thinks that they're they're kind of just on the same level and like they can help each other out and they can cover their lovers and they can all just, you know, get rich and happy and peaceful and live on forever. And he, he, because he doesn't know that Kristen wanted much more than that and was turned down. So Kristen is no longer interested in keeping the secret safe. People were, were talking about what exactly was, was the motive for him here. And it's just, for me, it felt like he just, he realizes, oh, I'm looking at my only path forward. Like, my only way to be with Rhaenyra is to be like Joffrey, and Kristen hates that, so he he, he just starts beating his mirror image to death. Yeah, sticking with the purple wedding parallels from the show, this has a similar fucked up dynamic as Loras and Jamie chatting for a little bit in that line in the Rose episode. There's arranged betrothals, men in the closet, a Kingsguard whose celibacy is in question. It's a lot of the same ingredients. The one from Thrones only ended with trading barbs, though, not with blows. There's also some great sound design here, a screeching or feedback noise that you might get from a mic as Kristen is losing his grip, dissociating, barely hearing the words that Joffrey is saying, just kind of getting lost in his own guilt and shame and anger. Which leads to the fight breaking out in the middle of the dance scene, and no one can really tell exactly what the cause is. When the scream starts is also right when Damon is grabbing Rhaenyra by the neck, and Viserys is watching them super intently, but then that all gets obscured, and then the screams start coming, and then all of a sudden, all mayhem breaks loose. I love that it, it cuts from... 
Viserys straining to to make out what's happening with Rhaenyra and Damon, like, oh, is he going to kiss her? It cuts right from that to the violence breaking out behind them. So it's like you're already poised. Like everyone's everyone's looking and trying to understand something that's happening just out of their sight. And at first it's it's something that might be happening romantically and then it's something violently. It's a just great transition. Yeah, it's something this show has been doing quite a bit where they're kind of, I wouldn't say hiding, but they're uh, not showing you necessarily the whole truth and it allowing some of that ambiguous space to remain uh, with the whole air for the day stuff and even some of the stuff with like Rhaenyra drinking the moon tea or not. Um, they're being very smart about what they're showing to you and how things can be misinterpreted to create, you know, maybe the histories that we know from Fire and Blood. But uh, one thing I pointed out is, well, first of all, the Strongs have a good showing here because once it seems like Rhaenyra might be in trouble, that she's in the middle of all that nonsense, Lionel Strong just shoots a look over to Sir Harwin and just, you know, tells him, go get her. And it kind of feels a lot like the Hound saving Sansa during the riots. It's just Harwin kind of easily working his way through the crowd, punching people left and right, maybe a clothesline in there. And then he just picks up Rhaenyra, throws her over his shoulder and just walks out of harm's way. All this um, reveals itself to be uh, Kristen Cole and Joffrey. I don't want to know if I want to say fighting so much as Kristen mm-hmm. Cole is whipping his ass. Because <laughs> um, uh, Fabian Finkel in interviews has described Kristen Cole as a thug of sorts. Something we haven't really seen much in this episode, or series rather, outside of his opening combat with uh, Daemon Targaryen at that tourney. Um, but we see he... He pops Lenor in the nose. Like, I think inadvertently, I don't think he knows exactly who he's hitting. Um, but we see that kind of out of control violence. And while all this is going on and Viserys is trying to get a handle of the situation, he himself, the king, is just having a nosebleed during all this, which I kind of want to make a reference to the Simpsons nerds who all get bl- nosebleeds at the wrong time. <laughs> um, but I think this is a little more dire for that. And it ends up being a very, very brutal death scene where. Essentially, Kristen Cole caves in Joffrey's head, and we get to see half of his skull smashed in. So, in light of all this violence, Viserys is like, eh, cancel the seven days of frivolities. We just need to get straight to it and make sure this wedding gets done before anything else goes wrong and either the Valerians get cold feet or worse, someone dies because of it. Such a miserable state of affairs with the the parties over. It's just a handful of people going through the motions. And it's just brutal as, as Lanor's just sobbing his way through his wedding vows. And it's just the lie of it and the, the performance of it is just is just so plain at that point. Like the Viserys was talking about the golden future of the next generation of dragons. And that it just already seems like it's in trouble because these personal emotions have, have filtered into what was supposed to be the political arrangement, as Damon described it. And there's once again some the show does some of its best work with the cross-cutting between scenes happening and we cross cut between the wedding at the end here and with Kristen uh, preparing to kill himself and you get the sense that almost that's what this feels like for them getting married especially for Lenor after Joffrey's death that he he may as well be killing himself yeah and Rhaenyra too has tears in her eyes and bags under them um, and she's always she's also looking down and kind of trading unsure glances with Lenor who's sometimes making eye contact with her and sometimes he's just looking down at his feet it's kind of miserable for everyone and that's before even the king collapses once again um, so this uh, ceremony which was kind of hastily thrown together also has to be called short because the king's health is in question which I think is very cut it, or fitting that the ending imagery is showing that all the food that was on the table that lavish feast we saw all that stuff is on 
unclear and it's all on the tables. It's just scraps and kind of going to waste. Meanwhile, the rats are feasting on the blood that was left by uh, Joffrey's face. <laughs> so like you mentioned, they're cross-cutting here and we're cross-cutting to Kristen Cole going out to the godswood and he looks like he's essentially about to commit seppuku in front of the heart tree, taking off all his armor. And it almost feels like a sacrifice to the old gods the way it looks visually. And my mind immediately watching this, given the fact that there's some strong Romeo and Juliet vibes between uh, Kristen Cole and Rhaenyra, was thinking of that, oh, happy dagger. Um, and I forget the rest of the line, but basically sheath this in me. And that's how Juliet kills herself by stabbing herself in the heart. And it's very fitting that at the same time, the Septon who's marrying Sir Lenor and Rhaenyra is saying one heart, one flesh over the moments where Kristen's just about to drive his dagger through his flesh and into his heart. Yeah, it's a perfect way of setting up how distant everyone is from from their goal, from the way they thought they could be happy and how they've, they've each fallen apart in their own way. And uh, for Kristen, it's, yeah, it's that, that sense of tragic loss, but he doesn't even get to die uh, next to his love, next to his romance. That's all just completely fallen apart for him now. And yeah, that's what on rewatch that really adds a certain context. Like I was saying to that earlier scene with him and Rhaenyra on the boat, that he's really he's just been melting down the whole time, and that those suicidal urges were there just beneath the surface. The the violence he unleashed on Joffrey, he's just going to turn it inward on himself. And then you have at the very end of the episode, Allison showing to to nod once again to the title of the episode, lighting the way uh, back to deliverance for him and. That's that's a great cut to black right there. As you know, Kristen's going to make it and join that faction. And also, I was thinking that this next coming time jump will allow them to kind of conveniently get around the question of why is no one seizing Kristen on the spot (laughs) and putting him under arrest. We'll just we'll just jump two years later. He's hidden or, you know, it's something has happened where he's it's okay that he's with Allison now or something. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Just like someone should have at least arrested him. But then again, I'm like, well, he's basically like a top level cop and cops generally don't arrest themselves. Who's, uh, no who matter. is going to be arresting Kristen Cole is a legitimate question. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he's probably just going to get put on paid admin leave and return in a couple months with, you know, acting as if nothing ever happened. But uh, one point I really did like is Alicia, one of the hosts from Direwolf City and former guest on Not A Cast, um, had a great notion that Cole is going to look up to Allison now as possibly a savior figure, as someone who can light the way for her, and someone who can possibly grant him absolution, whether it's due to her authority as queen and the power that flows to her through the crown, or her relationship to the faith, which is something that the high towers generally are in good standing with, perhaps the house that's in best standing with with the faith. So um, Allison as a way for absolution um, could be the appeal to Kristen Cole, but um, building on some of the themes of patriarchy in this, Cole could be using her as, you know, a means of cleaning his own soul, however he's conceived it is right now. That's exactly the pitch he was making to Rhaenyra earlier. And yeah, I love that's a great point by Alicia about the religious symbolism of this with the, the old gods right there watching and Kristen about to turn himself into a blood sacrifice of the kind they love so much, and then getting called away by an emblem of the faith, which is always connected to the knights and to the king's guard, especially what with the seven of them and all that. So I think that's perfect. That's exactly what's going on in the subtext there. So that is going to wrap us up for this episode on We Light the Way, episode five of House of the Dragon. Thank you so much for listening. 
As always, if you want to drop us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate it. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. And you can follow me at Quentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find my coverage of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, over at my brother, my captain, my podcast. So coming up later this week, I'm going to be releasing my uh, first monthly episode on Star Wars for patrons. I was covering the Star Wars Weekly while I was on hiatus from A Song of Ice and Fire. Now I'm going to be continuing those episodes monthly for all $5 and above patrons. We're jumping into Revenge of the Sith. So that first, uh, my first episode on that movie is going to be out for patrons starting on Friday. And then for all $5 and above patrons on Monday. So check out the Patreon if you haven't already to take a listen to those Star Wars episodes. And then we will uh, next be coming back for A Song of Ice and Fire the week after that with everyone's favorite character, Jamie Lannister. I, I would say shit gets real in that Jamie chapter, but really every Jamie chapter is a succession of shit getting ever more real. So <laughs> kind of redundant, I guess. Yeah, there's a lot of pain to talk about next week, but hopefully you guys will not be in pain. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. It's going to be great. Probably the uh, one of the weightier chapters we've dealt with in a while. So it's going to be a terrific episode. So thanks again for listening, everyone. And we will uh, see you next week for more House of the Dragon.